Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 173, recorded for the week of July 13th, 2022. Oracle begins its invasion of sovereign nations. Good evening, Jonathan and Peter. How's it going? Good. Hey, Justin. How are you? Good. Good. Going well. Good to hear from all of you, since I guess I'm seeing you too. Yeah, we are seeing each other, but our listeners are not. So <laughs> we we get to see each other, but they don't. We could we could we should try another video one at some point in the future. I don't know what. Well, uh, last week after uh, AWS gave us nothing, they've given us an abundance of riches from the New York Summit and a bunch of other things. So there's a ton of stories for AWS this week. Uh, and so we should jump into it, though, with some general news. Uh, so first up, uh, Jim Chanos, uh, who's in the financial space, uh, you know, is best known for being one of the big short sellers out there and, and trolls. Uh, and, but he predictably, uh, predicted that Enron was going to fail. Uh, and he is now apparently planning to short sell data center real estate investment trusts, or REITs. Uh, for those of you who know what those are, basically Equi- Equinax and uh, re- uh, Digital Realty and other data center companies basically put their land products into the public market. And then these trusts basically buy those things up and, and own part of the land and help invest in those things. And so Jim Chano says that the data centers are screwed, Colo's a dying breed, and that he's going to short that market he believes that the cloud is growing, and the cloud is uh, REIT's enemy, and that value is accrued to cloud, not brick-and-mortar colo. Uh, of course, the register who wrote this article, I wasn't so sure, and uh, I would say either am I. <laughs> Pointing to the massive backlog of infrastructure ranging from servers and switches, blocked by supply chain, to uh, ongoing pent-up demand in Europe for data center space, uh, I don't necessarily know that these things are going to be running out of business anytime soon. No. Uh, eventually, when that gear gets there, you got to put it somewhere, and a colo makes sense. Yeah, not to mention, not to mention the colo providers are the ones buying the land and building the data centers for the cloud companies. Well, that was my thought too. I'm like, well, digital digital realty <laughs> builds buildings that then they lease to Amazon, and you know maybe they're building it as a you know they're going to sell it to Amazon or whatever. But they're that's what they do. That's what they specialize in is building data centers and then selling them to colos <laughs> or to uh, cloud companies, and so. Uh, you know, with Dell Oro Group was actually quoted in this article saying there's 30 regions being added globally this year across all of the big three cloud providers. Plus, you know, Oracle's got to add at least 30 on their own. Uh, you know, so there's lots of headwinds, apparently, uh, that are not in Chanos's favor, but he thinks otherwise. Uh, he also believes that rising interest rates will further hurt colo companies who have borrowed money at ultra-low interest rates. However, uh, Equinax Digital Realty and Iron Mountain have all said they don't have meaningful near-term exposure to rate increases. Uh, but anyway, despite all of this, Equinix and Digital Realty have seen their stocks slide more than 20% this year to date. Uh, and I will patiently wait for Jim Chanos to eat his hat on this one because I think he's wrong. I would like to short Jim Chanos. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, w- it wouldn't be the first uh, blog post or news article or press release, I guess you'd call it, uh, from a short seller who's trying to sow doubt on the thing that he's trying to short sell. Though. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. You're, you're trying to short sell colos by, by telling us that colos aren't good to invest in uh, and they don't have a future? Well, I mean, that's sort of self-serving in a way. He's not, he's not doing uh, anybody else any favors. I think it's, it's entirely part of his, uh, his, uh, his plan. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was just looking here. For sure. Yeah, and his Wikipedia, you know, he was correct on Enron, which Enron, you know, was sort of like the housing market crisis where you're sort of like, well, if you knew what to look for, you could tell that it was all built on car- house of cards. Uh, he apparently predicted the Chinese real estate crash. Uh, he took a, a short position in Luckin Coffee, which I've never heard of. Uh, he took a short position in Wirecard AG, a uh, short position in Hertz during the pandemic. So nice of him. Uh, and a short position in Beyond Meat, which has not uh, materialized for him yet either, as well as he's shorting many, many cryptocurrencies, which that might be making some money for him right now. Cryptocurrencies are in bad place. Uh, Oof, so that's, uh, yeah. That's something interesting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, when you see these guys in the news, you're always like, yeah, you're just trying to pump the stock down for your own benefit. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, I don't remember if you were back yet, Peter, but uh, we talked about Target. And Target had recently announced that they had heavily invested in Kubernetes and edge computing uh, to be more competitive. And uh, you know, Walmart saw that and said, well, we're doing it too, and we want to talk about it. And uh, so they're here this week talking about their cloud-native platform journey. 
the Walmart CTO claims that they now run the largest hybrid cloud in existence. This is based on what they call the triplet model. They leverage West Coast, Central, and East Regional cloud deployments connected to 10,000 edge cloud nodes located in their facilities. Bringing computational power and data closer to customers and associates, resulting in better application performance and low latency. Walmart claims they were able to reduce their cloud costs by 10 to 18% annually using this model. And the architecture allows them to deploy applications in both public and private clouds and seamlessly redirect traffic between them. This is done by using an intelligent routing layer called Traffic Management, an open-source cloud management platform called OneOps, and the Walmart Cloud Native Platform, which provides cloud abstraction layers to them. And the Walmart Cloud Network Platform manages a huge deployment of 545,000 pods and 93,000 nodes. Uh, all this was started years ago, but was publicly acknowledged by Walmart in February 2020, right in time for the pandemic. Uh, and Walmart acknowledged that the cloud was becoming central to a modern software operation, but they didn't want to just lift and shift all their existing apps to the cloud. Rather, they wanted to take advantage of what the cloud offers and like the idea of making apps cloud-native, but maintaining a control plane that determines where the application actually runs. Uh, the runtimes are distributed between their large private cloud that runs OpenStack, uh, public cloud partners, specifically Azure and GCP, uh, you know, strangely enough, AWS is not one of their partners. And then uh, Edge Locations, uh, hosted within their stores, bringing applications closer to customers and their employees. Walmart ultimately says this gives them three advantages. One, around capacity management for bursable traffic for temporary needs. Uh, use of the best technology for each type of workload. And improving performance by deploying some applications at their Edge location, normally in the Walmart store itself. It's pretty convenient having 10,000 stores uh, and, and right. have the ability to put, I mean, they're massive buildings, put a couple of racks in every store with communications. That's that's an amazing network of, of edge locations. They could do a lot with that. They could go into streaming services. They could do all kinds of things. That's. Um, it will be interesting to to, to work on on the, the tech side of, of Walmart. I don't think I'd ever work for them, you know, in a store, but the, the work they're doing with the labs is um, is quite interesting. Yeah, and I think the model makes a lot of sense from a, um, a hybrid position. And I can see lots of companies going this direction and lots of them not having enough scale to really have that a, a significant amount of the workloads running in their own private cloud. Uh, but the model still makes a ton of sense, even if 90% of your stuff is in a public cloud or multiple public clouds. I do I do like how they call their stores edge locations, uh, which... Yeah, that's that's a nice marketing spin. Yeah, you know, having worked having worked at a big box retailer in the past live, uh, you know, they all have had servers in their stores forever because they needed a way in case the internet went down or the technology point to point typically went down, that the store wouldn't completely collapse. <laughs> uh, and so they always had server racks and they always had infrastructure in this. But now they're calling that an edge location, which I was like, wow, okay, it's an interesting perspective on what an edge location is in this particular context. I, I guess they can. They could call it an edge location if they're serving external users. You know, if if I go to Walmart.com and I'm actually hitting a, a web server just up the street because it's the closest to me, with the lowest latency, then yeah, I, I could call that an edge location. But yeah, it's it's a bit. It's but a bit do, of a but do you think they're doing that? I don't think they're doing that. I think they're. No, I don't no, think they're they hosting could. public website. They could, but they're not doing that. No way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but you know, you do, any reasons why you guys think AWS isn't a preferred partner of Walmart? <laughs> I can't, I can't think of it. So anything. weird. So weird. So weird. Yeah. Speaking of that, what, what happened to Walmart Prime Day? <laughs> oh, they, God. Uh, I think Target and Walmart both announced their own Prime Prime activities. I am looking forward to the Jeff Barr blog post, which will come out in the next few weeks about Prime Day and how how many bajillions of transactions they supported through their. It's always fun. Yeah. Did you buy anything today nope. or yesterday? Oh, actually, I did buy nope, something today, <laughs> uh, but not. It wasn't a Prime special. Uh, I happened to be sitting at my desk, and uh, the power was uh, surging uh, for some reason, and uh, my computers rebooted themselves, but my laptop did not. And I was like, you know what? Battery backup would be really good to have for this moment, and so <laughs> I did go hop on Amazon for that. But uh, that was not a. It was not on Prime special, so <laughs> it was just a battery backup I could have bought last week for the same price. I bought nothing from Amazon, but. I bought a bunch of uh, appliances from Nebraska Furniture Mart, which I believe, is that owned by the Walmart people? Might be. There's some relationship, I think. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they have a big sale today, too. That's good. Big sale. Well, moving on to Amazon news. First up, the M1 instances of Mac minis that they have apparently racks of inside of the AWS data center is now generally available after being in preview since reInvent. Uh, EC2 Mac site 
Mac instances are dedicated Mac Mini computers attached through Thunderbolt to the AWS Nitro system, which let the Mac Mini appear and behave like another EC2 instance. It connects to your VPC, boots off EBS, and uses EBS snapshots, AMI secure groups, and other AWS services like CloudWatch and AWS Systems Manager. Remember that to use these, you must turn them on for a minimum of 24 hours due to Apple's lovely licensing agreement. Yeah, that's a real pain. I can't imagine that in the long run they'll they'll make any more money from that than they would do if they, you know, build by the second or build by the minute. Once once there's enough um, sort of critical mass of users using those systems, it it, it shouldn't matter if there's only a, a finite number of Macs that can be used. Then that's how much money they're going to get paid. But that's a, it's a bit of a chore because that really that really puts a stop to some of the use cases I've had for Macs in um, in AWS because it's just too unaffordable. If I needed to run for an hour to do something, to have to pay for a whole 24 hours. It's, um, I hope that changes. Yeah, for our customers, it's testing iOS apps. I, the one use case is always the, you know, replace the Mac Mini under some developer's desk. Uh, so I, I imagine in COVID, it became a very big market. Uh, that probably didn't exist prior to COVID because everyone had to get out of the office where they, the hidden Mac Mini build server used to live. And then uh, I suspect that this next, um, next announcement might have been a reinforced announcement that leaked a little early in the SDK. Uh, they really have not touted this functionality, but I think this is a big deal. Uh, and so let me tell you about it. This is the AWS Identity and Access Management uh, is now enabling workloads that run outside of AWS to access AWS resources using IAM roles anywhere. IAM Roles Anywhere allows your workloads such as servers, containers, and applications using a X509 digital certificate to obtain temporary AWS credentials and use the same IAM roles and policies that you have configured for your AWS workloads to access AWS resources. Using these temporary credentials, of course, can improve the security posture of your systems, and the IAM Role Anywhere can reduce support costs and operational complexity through using the same access controls, deployment pipelines, and testing processes across all of your workloads. Uh, you can get started by establishing the trust between your AWS environment and your PKI, and you can do this by creating a trust anchor, whether you either, whether you reference the AWS Certificate Manager Private Certificate Authority or register your own Certificate Authority with IAM Roles Anywhere. By adding one or more roles to the profile, enabling IAM Roles Anywhere to assume these roles, your apps can now use the client certificate issued by your CA to make secure requests to AWS and get temporary credentials to access the AWS environment. That's awesome. This is a, a huge challenge, and there's been ways to, to work around this with things like SSM, which also uses those certificates for enrollment into SSM. Um, and previously, we've written jobs which vend credentials out using SSM to individual nodes in a data center. But that's so clunky, really. Um, this, this has removed a huge obstacle to adoption of things like ECS Anywhere or EKS Anywhere. Um, of course, the question is now, how do you, how do you securely get that certificate onto those hosts? <laughs> By what process do you do you do that? Even when they started doing ECS anywhere and EKS anywhere, that was one of my big questions. Like, well, how are you guys handling this part? Because if you can make that available to all of us, uh, that would make things a lot, lot easier. Yeah, yeah. Again, we, we always seem to come back around to this identity being such a critical piece, especially machine identity. But yeah, this is awesome. Very, very cool. Amazon EC2 auto-scaling customers can now monitor their predictive scaling policy using Amazon CloudWatch. Uh, of course, if you're using the predictive scaling policy forecasts, uh, all your CloudWatch needs based off metrics, enabling you to analyze, monitor, and set alarms on the accuracy of your predictive scaling. So if you set it up and you weren't sure it's working quite right, you can now use CloudWatch to see if it's missing the mark or scaling prematurely or not fast enough. And this allows you to get ahead of that problem and improve the availability of your application while reducing uh, the need to stay over-provisioned and otherwise could increase your EC2 bill. That's kind of funny. In a way, having to, you know, we have the service that does the scaling for you and it's supposed to be intelligent, but now you have to keep an eye on that service to make sure it's not doing things that you don't want it to and costing you too much money. I, I, I don't understand how you kind of close the loop on this, though. If it's if it's um, machine learning generated predictive scaling, how do you yeah. how do you use this this insight to to retrain the model and say, no, actually, you should have done that. It should be lower, it should be higher at this time. Um, seems like there's a, a missing piece right there. But, uh, you know, if I, if I was going to build the automation to to scale sensibly, um, if, I was gonna, if I have to build automation to, to watch the predictions to make sure it does what I wanted it to, I could just have built those policies myself in the first place. So it seems to uh, sort of discount the, the value of predictive scaling, really. That's so funny because I think predictive scaling was the first feature request that I heard from a customer that they thought would sort of be in the cloud. And 
gosh, that must have been like 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently it's a really hard problem to solve. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the window of, of data that you have is, is critical. Um, you know, you maybe say so you go back two weeks, but then every, every holiday when no one's in the office, then you, you spin up things that you don't need or uh, you, you have trends and all of a sudden you have Amazon Prime Day, which blows everything out of the water or you have some kind of big, big press event or there could be so many things out of our control which are not taken account of in the model. Um, I, I, think, I think responsive scaling is probably a better plan in the long run. Yeah. But predictive is so valuable, right? If you, if you can predict by... Uh, current uh actions and, and current trends in uh your the application use if you know feature one is being used which means feature two is coming next and that's a really good one to have compute spun up already to for a great user experience yeah uh, i guess so i mean i guess, I guess uh, an example could be logging into a website you know if you have a user logging into a site you know that the next thing they're going to do is probably whatever they did the last time or uh, you know, at least they're going to start using it or searching for things. So, you know, the, the login itself or the, the number of active users could just be the trigger for the uh, for the scale up. But I don't know. I and think... then you don't want to have to program those, right? You because you have no idea how people are using your app once it gets complex. Mm -hmm. It'd be great if AI was figuring out that for you. <laughs> yeah, really would be. Well, if you're a .NET developer and you are leveraging AWS for all your compute needs, uh, they're now announcing the general availability of the new streamlined deployment experience for .NET apps. With sensible defaults for all deployment settings, you can now get your .NET application up and running in just one click or with a few easy steps without needing deep expertise in AWS. Uh, you'll receive recommendations on the optimal compute for your app, giving you the more confidence in your initial deployment. Uh, you can find the new tooling in the AWS Toolkit for Visual Studio using the new Publish to AWS Wizard, or it's also available in the .NET CLI by installing the AWS Deploy tool for .NET. Uh, key capabilities include that compute recommendation capability, uh, letting you pick the right type of compute for your application that's best suited. And if you happen to choose uh, ECS or one of the other container runtimes, it'll also generate you a Docker file uh, that will set up all of your compute. Uh, it will give you auto-packaging and deployment of your app, which will be built and packaged as required by the chosen AWS Compute product. And the tooling will provision the necessary infrastructure and deploy your app using the AWS CDK. They give you a repeatable and shareable deployment, which you can generate well-organized and documented CDK deployment projects and start modifying them to fit your specific use cases if those uh, sensible defaults don't work for you. Then version control them and share that with your team for repeatable deployments. Uh, Built-in CI-CD integration to turn off interactive features and use different deployment settings to push the same application bundles to different environments and help with learning AWS CDK for .NET over time. By seeing what it's doing for you, you'll learn it faster. Uh, it can be used for ASP.NET Core apps, long-running services, scheduled tasks, and WebAssembly apps that are built on .NET Core 3.1 and above, including the .NET 7 preview. The solution supports deployments to ECS Fargate, AWS AppRunner, and Elastic Beanstalk, and they also support hosting Blazor WebAssembly apps in S3 using CloudFront as your CDN. Probably not going to get a lot of use out of this, personally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I personally would not either, but I have a lot of .NET friends who will get value out of it for sure. I mean, it's better than going down the beanstalk path. Yeah, how, how nice is it though to be able to build integration into somebody's IDE that that lets that lets them click a button and start spending money on your cloud? Though that's that's awesome. That's, that's such a um, such an opportunity for not, not just .NET deployments, but any deployments. Could be a huge for sure. uh, huge sales funnel. Yeah, for sure. Greenfield, old school method. Go to the developers, get them on a platform. And then when mm -hmm. they scale up, they'll have to figure out how to use it right later. But they're <laughs> on your platform now. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered.
Well, the New York Summit was this week uh, in beautiful New York City, uh, and they announced uh, three big things uh, that you may be interested in at the summit this year. First up is there are three three new serverless analytics offerings. Uh, AWS announced the general availability of those three offerings, including the serverless big data analytics with Amazon EMR serverless, allowing customers to use Spark and Hive for large-scale distributed data processing jobs, interactive SQL queries, and ML applications. The serverless data streaming with MSK services to allow you uh, your organization to adopt Apache Kafka to capture and analyze real-time data streams from IoT devices, website clickstreams, database logs, and many other sources where dynamic data is continually generated. And the serverless data warehouse from Amazon Redshift Serverless, which allows you to process exabytes of data with three times better price performance than other enterprise cloud data warehouses, <laughs> Snowflake, providing customers with faster data analytics at a lower cost. And we have a quote here from Swami Asibas Arimian, Vice President of Database Analytics and Machine Learning at AWS. By offering the most serverless options for data analytics in the cloud, including options for data warehousing, big data processing, real-time data analysis, data integration, interactive dashboards, and visualizations, and more, we're making it even easier for customers to maximize the value of their data to drive innovation, improve customer experience, and make better decisions faster. With these new serverless options, customers can run even more, even the most variable and intermittent analytics workloads and expand the use of anal- analytics throughout their organization without worrying about provisioning or scaling capacity or incurring access costs. Thanks, Swami. Yeah, that's what everyone wants. It's for their stuff to scale down when they're not using it. I, I would imagine uh, iRobot would love this kind of thing because people probably aren't running their vacuums 24 hours a day. It's, <laughs> but they want to collect all that data. So, yeah, it's, it's neat. You wonder in iRobot's case, though, because uh, they're so international now that you know you learn what the bank, you know, what the ro- what the the vacuuming workloads of the entire world are <laughs> as it travels the globe and like really uh, exactly. I, wanna, I only want to vacuum at you know this time of day and every every day at eight a.m. at big spikes in like every time zone you can imagine. You know, people leave the house. Yeah, I, I made the assumption that they would they would have regional um, presences so that customer data was stored in particular parts of the world. But yeah, you're right. It would be interesting to see, you know, exactly how many uh, how many miles the robots have driven. <laughs> right. How many times have they circled the Earth per day? Yeah. Or how many times have they been to the moon and back? Those kind of questions are always fun. Well, the Cloud WAN, which is a managed WAN service from AWS, is also generally available. Uh, this is a network service that makes it easy to build and operate a WAN that connects your data centers and branch offices, as well as multiple VPCs and multiple AWS regions. Cloud WANs allows networking teams to connect to AWS through their choice of local network providers, then use a central dashboard and network policy to create a unified network that connects their locations and network types. This eliminates the needs to configure and manage different networks individually, even when they are based on different technologies. Cloud WAN generates a complete view of your on-premise and AWS network to help you visualize the health, security, and performance of your network. Uh, and there are no setup or upfront uh, setup or upfront fees, and billing is on demand. But the billing is complicated. There's four factors to keep in mind for billing. Uh, first is the core network edge devices that you deploy. Each of those you have to pay. Uh, the number of attachments to that core network edge device, which may be a VPN, a VPC, or an SD WAN connection. Uh, has to be charged. Third, the number of transit gateways peered to your CNE. And fourth, the data processing charge for traffic sent through the CNE device itself. Oh, and by the way, if you're also sending between AWS regions, you also get to add on a uh, inter-region data transfer out charge on top of all of that. So uh, this one could get expensive if you're not paying attention, so be careful. Uh, this is in NAT gateway territory as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, super expensive, but how, um, how nice to finally get a sort of managed cloud MPLS connectivity. It's a it's a it's a huge a, a huge pain to have to manage that, especially especially globally and needing teams all over the place to go plug things in to to have it entirely managed by somebody else is uh, it's kind of nice. I'm having such a deja vu because I feel like I uh, heard this announcement at reInvent. It was it was a preview then. Now it's certainly available. Aha! Uh-huh. Thank you. And then the last announcement is. Uh, AWS announcing a new feature, Log Anomaly Detection and Recommendations for Amazon DevOps Guru. This feature allows you to find anomalies through relevant logs with your app and get targeted recommendations to resolve your issue. The Log Anomaly Detection and Recommendations feature is able to detect exception to keywords, numerical anomalies, HTTP status codes, data format anomalies, and more. When DevOps Guru identifies anomalies from logs, you will find relevant log samples and deep links to CloudWatch logs on the DevOps Guru dashboard. These contextualized logs are an important component for DevOps Guru to provide further features, namely targeted recommendations to help faster troubleshooting and issue recommendations. 
Ooh, man, they're going after New Relic and uh, Datadog and, and those other SaaS logging services that do a very similar thing. First you partner, then you kill them. <laughs> you see all the revenue yeah. going through your marketplace. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> exactly. So they drive their, uh, their right, all their decisions on there, just like on Amazon retail. And that's it from the summit. Uh, you know, again, if I was there, I, would, I don't think I'd be very, uh, been very th- and through, uh, thrilled with what they announced. But uh, yeah, good to see the announcement wheel starting to turn again at these conferences, which they had sort of died off during pandemic. So nice to see. Uh, well, GCP here has one story for us this week, uh, and that is how they're preparing for the post-quantum world. Uh, we've talked about post-quantum crypto a few times as AWS, of course, is investing heavily in this particular research area as well. Uh, and Google joins the fray with their own article on investments in post-quantum cryptography, or PQC, which because I'm not going to say post-quantum cryptography through the whole article. <laughs> uh, tied to the announcement <laughs> by NIST of the third round of PQC standardization process, Google is sharing their submission called Sphinx was selected for standardization, and two submissions, Classic, McElsey, and Bike are being considered for the fourth round of inclusion in the PQC standardization. Uh, Google is really focused on four areas they talk about in their post-quantum world, uh, driving industry contributions to standards, moving the ecosystem beyond theory and into practice through testing of PQC algorithms, taking action to ensure that Google is PQC ready, and helping their customers manage the transition to PQC. In addition to the NIST work, Google is also working on the ISO 14888-4, where Google is the editor for standard on stateful hash-based signatures. More recently, they have contributed to the IETF proposal on data formats, which will find JSON and CBOR serialization formats for PQC digital signature schemes. Google was working on testing for a while with the testing in 2016 in Chrome, where they would have the Chrome, when communicating to the Google system, use a post-quantum key exchange algorithm in addition to the elliptical curve algorithm. This moved to a wide-scale experiment with the Cloudflare in 2019, where they worked together to implement two post-quantum key exchanges, integrating them into Cloudflare TLS stack and deploying the implementation on the Edge server and in Chrome Canary clients. And they continue to work on this uh, practical implementation of PQC across their ecosystem. This quantum computing has been taken very seriously from a security, uh, security, uh, not speak. I was going to say PQC, security perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I think conservative estimates, 10 to 20 years before we have quantum computers large enough and reliable enough to run Shor's algorithm to, um, to factor these large primes. Um, but yeah, we're starting. I mean, actually this process for NIST started, uh, eight years ago, I think. And so the, the, these algorithms have been contributed for quite some time. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I guess it's going to take a long time for businesses to, to actually catch on and realize and, and modernize and adopt this before uh, you know, the bad things start to happen, uh, if they ever do. Meanwhile, we're still trying to get TLS 1.0 turned off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think the big issue here is from the federal government perspective is that you know if if a post you know if, in a world where quantum computing can actually you know go through those primes fast enough and actually decrypt all this data that's in flight and in their networks, it's a huge security risk, huge national security interest story, huge problem for the world um, as all of this data and potentially systems become exposed due to the lack of of really TLS. And so for them, I think it's a really big priority, which is why NIST is so interested in it. Um, you know, does it follow into the corporate world as quickly? No. Will it become a big issue when it happens? Hell yeah. <laughs> There'll be a Y2K <laughs> level disaster that we'll have to be dealing with. Um, and so, you know, it, it's interesting to see the research, but yeah, it's not ready for anybody to actually use it uh, at any scale unless you have super duper security requirements. One of the things I, that stood out to me looking at the the authors, you know, the mathematicians and the cryptographers who are working on these these problems and providing these algorithms to NIST is that they're they're not just US based, and that's a in stark contrast to um, I think like around about the year two thousand when you know there were export restrictions on cryptography on strong cryptography, and they would never have considered um, t- taking work or or building standards based on the work of somebody from the Netherlands or Germany or anywhere else. And so the fact that this is a, a massive global effort to develop these algorithms in time is uh, is both kind of refreshing that the people are working together and policies have changed and also I guess it highlights the, the severity of the situation. Yeah. Let's move to Azure, uh, which has this story which if you're using the 
The Azure logging solution today, uh, you have to move to the new Azure Monitor Agent, which will provide you a secure, cheap, simplified, and performant way to collect telemetry data from Azure VMs, VM scale sets, and Arc-enabled servers and Windows client devices. Uh, and this all has to be done before uh, 2024 when the log analytics agent is deprecated. Uh, but of course, Microsoft, in true Microsoft fashion, made this difficult because they changed a bunch of the ways that these things worked. And instead of just saying, look, we'll take your log analytics agent config file and just load it into AMA, uh, they, of course, broke all that backwards compatibility. And so they now have to give you a migration path. And so they given this new tool, the migration agent migration tools, um, public preview. And this tool will automate the migration of the agent using the tool and leverage built-in policies. And this tool will work if you're not using additional solutions or services. So if you're using custom stuff in your log analytics agents, this is not the tool for you. <laughs> but if you are doing basic vanilla stuff, which I don't know who that person is, uh, the AMA Migration Helper is the workbook-based solution in Azure Monitor that helps you discover what to migrate and track progress as you move from legacy agents to Azure Monitor agent on your VM. And the new DCR config generator will leave the old busted configuration and give you a new Azure Monitor agent uh, configuration, which relies on data collection rules for configuration, where, of course, the legacy agent pulled that config from log analytics workspaces. Uh, so if this is you and you care about anything I just said to you, uh, this is great for you. I'm super happy for you. And for everyone else, we're just like, this is crazy. My, why Microsoft? Yeah. Why? Yeah, if only they built the migration tool into the actual agent itself, it would be a whole lot easier. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> Mm, I'm sure they'll be happy to uh, accept your professional services money to help you migrate the things that the tool doesn't help with. I'm sure they'll let you, I'm sure they'll be happy to sell you your partner's money <laughs> to help you fix this problem because Azure doesn't do anything for you. So, no, I just I wonder if they uh, they made the code that they wrote for that open so that people can use it as an example. If they have more complex or custom needs but want to automate their move as well, because there might be some good principles behind what they built. There might be. Uh, there was no mention of it being open sourced or available uh, in the blog article I looked at, but you know, I could go. I could dig deeper if I really cared enough. Oh, it's a PowerShell script. You can. You can probably. There's my request, Microsoft. Make it open source. Let people see what you did. Help them do it for themselves. Well, the D the DCR config generator is a PowerShell script, so you can probably get a pretty good feeling for what it is through that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Uh, well, Windows uh, Server 2022 is now going to support uh, Container Insights in preview. Uh, you can enable the Container Insights for your AKS cluster running on the operating system. And I normally wouldn't have talked about this article, but then I, I about fell out of my chair when I saw that there are limitations in Server 2022 for running containers that I thought I should share with you. The first up is there's only a maximum of 30 Windows Server containers supported per node. Uh, Windows does not provide the memory RSS metric, so you have no way to know how the, what the memory of your containers is doing. There's no disk storage capacity information available in the beta, and only Kubernetes, not Docker, environments are monitored by the Windows-enabled container insights. Uh, and so I wonder how many people are actually using Windows containers, because those all seem like pretty bad limitations for this tool. Uh, but in general, it seems like if you have no insights into what's happening on your servers, uh, how, do you know, how do you know if you're doing observability right? 30 is a strange limit. I, I know you can run more VMs on, on Hyper-V than, um, than you can run containers on uh, on that. So I kind of wonder why why that limitation exists. It, it, you know, I, I often wonder why things are done the way they are <laughs> with Azure. <yeah>. So <laughs> it's, I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you, when you get into certain scenarios, like where we're, we're looking at um, SQL always on availability groups, right, for a SQL server. And so there's a limitation in the doc or guidance. They call it guidance, the documentation. You can only do 100 databases or 100 schemas in uh, always on availability group. And you're like, well, why is that? And why is it guidance? Well, if your server is fast enough, your network's fast enough, your storage is fast enough, you can do more than that. <laughs> but how much more you can do that, they don't give you any guidance on that side of it. So you have to go do your own testing. But you know, it all comes down to how does Microsoft make the threads for the databases connect to each other and keep everything in sync. And there's only so many threads that a server can handle before it just falls over and dies, which is really the reason why there's a limitation. But the limitation they gave you is so far below the normal limit of the operating system that they have no fear that you're going to violate it. And then they can deny you support when it breaks. It's really good. Thanks, Microsoft. It makes their support team, it's a lot easier to be on their support team. Just yeah. Decrease the number of containers until it works. Uh, well, sometimes Oracle is the master of marketing. And this time, uh, this week, they had a story that I just loved. So OCI uh, will launch new sovereign cloud regions for their customers across the EU. 
which means at some point this year, Larry Ellison will now tell you that Oracle was the first to have the sovereign cloud. Uh, OCI sovereign cloud regions will address compliance laws within the EU with the first two regions in Germany and Spain with ops and and support restricted to EU residents and specific EU legal entities. Sovereign cloud regions will be logically and physically separate from existing OCI regions in the EU. So if you're operating in Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Paris, Marseille, Milan, or Stockholm, uh, screw you, you don't have sovereign cloud even though you're in the EU. Uh, sovereign cloud regions will not change. Will not charge you more than the normal cloud, though, so you can market to the new ones as soon as you want to. And there's a quote here from Andrea Sorcerini from Accenture, Oracle Business Group lead. Accenture's new sovereign cloud practice in Europe is helping to accelerate the adoption of cloud services by organizations that are interested in leveraging sovereign cloud solutions. Our ecosystem partnership with Oracle and its sovereign cloud offering is an exciting step forward. The Oracle Sovereign Cloud Regions for the EU, we bring our clients the ability to host sensitive data and applications in a public cloud that is both within the EU and designed to facilitate customers' compliance with EU data privacy and sovereignty regulations. This offering allows us to leverage any and every Oracle Cloud infrastructure public cloud service for our future products. Sovereign Cloud from Oracle, only one. I feel so bad for Accenture that they have to build products around this. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, any any Oracle press release, you'll find an Accenture quote. I, I think it's like a it must be a contract simulation of their partnership that we have to they have to partner on everything. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for new news this week. Peter, take us to lightning round. All right. AWS repost introduces profile pictures and inline images. So now you can find out that your person answering your question really is uh, in another country being bombed in the Ukraine. Amazon Workmail now supports invoking Lambda to fetch availability. I love the fact that this has to be implemented in Lambda, considering Workmail is the product, and you'd think it'd be able to publish on its own basis its availability. I got nothing for these things. I just, okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Carry on. He's already admitting defeat. <laughs> I did try really hard. I read through them a number of times. Like, I, I just got, I got nothing for these things. He's got writer's block. That's because your uh, your your uh, your bar has to be much higher <laughs> before you agree to say a comment about that. That's that's you can that's say right. something. It's yeah. Um, AWS Security Hub launches thirty six new security best practice controls that weren't there just a month ago, and all of a sudden I have thirty six times the number of AWS accounts, uh, new SOC tickets. Thanks. I, I kind of think the mob's taken over. Um, over Security Hub because if you read through some of the controls I've added, they're a little self-serving. Like one, one of them is, uh, I know this isn't this isn't hilarious lightning round um, conversation material or anything, but one of them is uh, that you should have enabled uh, X-ray for your REST APIs. <laughs> like really? <laughs> so so you basically you, you're basically using using these uh, alerts as a, as a as a sales funnel for your other other services. Yeah. No, I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's don't right. think that's required. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. You haven't scheduled your QBR. (laughs) Please contact your sales team. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amazon QuickSight launches APIs for account create. See, Amazon accounts, not that hard to do. Amazon Athena enhances console and API support for parameterized queries. I got nothing on this one. That's that like, beautiful. It's like stored procedures for uh, for Athena, I guess. Like, oh, you do parameters. Yeah. Thanks. I'm glad you're a query language. Thanks <laughs> for that. Amazon Guard Duty introduces new machine learning capabilities to more accurately detect potentially malicious access to data stored in S3 buckets. I thought I was already paying it to do that. <laughs> that was my thought too as opposed to inaccurately <laughs> detecting it though that's probably like the best it was inaccurately detecting the malicious attack before but now it's accurately doing it that was that's my fart randomly but yes I also thought I paid them to do that <laughs> yes accurately the, the order of words in that sentence is very important is it potentially more accurately detecting malicious access or is it more accurately detecting potential malicious access like that, that, that potential word is very, very critical in that sentence mm-hmm who wants to do multi-cloud reporting and analytics using Google Cloud SQL and Power BI? This is how Google is trying to get the Azure customers to come over by offering them Power BI and Cloud SQL. See, we can do it here too. Come on over. Well, I think the answer is not me. <laughs> not me. 
Uh, okay, general availability announcement. As your database for Postgres, Hyperscale supports Postgres minor versions. I mean, I'm still shocked that Azure supports major versions of Postgres, so I'm glad it supports minor ones now. It's so interesting. It's an odd thing to announce. Uh, another GA would be Azure Active Directory authentication for application insights. I mean, if your insights have to authenticate with AD, then it's just bad news. No one wants it. Mm -mm. What about GA of Azure Application Insights standard test for synthetic monitoring, though? But did it authorize itself against the AD first? Because then I'm okay with it. I feel a, like a some sort of circular reference coming. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what this is. In, not in, and not equal query operators are now available for Google Firestorm in data store mode. Yeah, proving that all queries are created equal, but some are created more equal than others. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Not in my podcast, Jonathan. Not in my podcast. Everyone's equal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my God, that's wonderful. That was a lot of writing around. We probably should have, we probably should have purged that list before we, we talked about it. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. We should we'll just let the uh let the editor do it. <laughs> yeah. Elliot, if they're um, boring, just kill them. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to give it to Jonathan, but then not in my podcast got me. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Justin nice. takes a resounding lead. The end. I, I did strategically place that one there because I had that joke earlier in the day when I was writing the show notes. And I was like, I'm going to put this at the end. <laughs> I'm going I'm to play Jonathan's game. Because <laughs> 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 it was my best joke of the whole day. Thank like, you all for playing. Uh, yeah. No. All right. Well, things are coming up once again in the cloud. And if you stay tuned after the final bumper, uh, we will have a post show for you today. So just a little tease. Uh, but things coming up before that, uh, Google Cloud Summit Series. Uh, I have a blog post that's apparently updated regularly that has not been updated since June. So apparently nothing is going on in the Google Cloud Summit Series anymore. And uh, so but uh, end of July is just a few weeks away, and AWS Reinforce is coming at us hot and fast in Boston once again. Uh, Scale, which is the largest community-run open source and free software conference, is coming to Los Angeles on uh, July 28th. Uh, and, and part of the event, there will also be the AWS Cloud Native Builder Day, the DevOps Day LA, and Postgres will be at Scale doing a bunch of sub-events uh, that you can take advantage of at scale. And it's a very cheap conference. If you're looking for a conference, it's only about $80 for a pass to go to all the cool events uh, and join in on the fun at scale. And then uh, Black Hat USA is in August, and then there's much, much more coming after that later in the year. Check out the show notes for all of the details uh, on things coming up once again in the cloud. And that's it for another fantastic week. See you guys next week. Bye-bye. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Let's do after show here. So uh, I, this is new. We haven't done an after show officially. We've Jonathan likes to edit in funny things occasionally, which is always a treat for those who are here. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk about self-driving cars, and uh, it's not really a cloud thing. And and I was spurred on by the information which had an article uh, from Apple about their eight-year car journey and how they've been struggling to build a self-driving car. Uh, and so I want to talk to you guys about it because I was curious what your opinions were. And uh, so. You know, first of all, if you read this article, you find out that Apple apparently can't decide if they want to build a car or partner with the car manufacturer. They've been all over the place. Uh, but one of the big things they've been trying to do is they've been trying to leapfrog other competitors in the space by getting rid of the requirement for a 3D map to be on car. Uh, and so they're trying to basically jump ahead of Waymo. And so basically the argument they're making is that if they could do that, then they could drive it anywhere in the world without having to have all these complicated maps. And then they could just stick with LiDAR as the only thing they need. Uh, and you know, but ultimately, that's a that's a pretty aggressive move. Uh, and then other manufacturers like Waymo and stuff are doing better. And then you know, Tesla. You know, I originally bought into some of their hype. Uh, you know, that their thing was going to be amazing and that it's great. And now we know it kills people. It's maybe not as great uh, and doesn't work quite as well as advertised in all scenarios. Although it does work quite well in many, I understand. 
Um, you know, but it does feel a little bit vaporware still. So I was curious, what do you guys think about driving cars? And, you know, there's some cloud story to it with edge devices being potentially usable, you know, to help power uh, cars that are driving themselves. But, you know, ultimately, I, I feel like we're sort of in this, like, either trough of disillusionment where this is all never going to happen or uh, maybe it's, there's going to be a huge breakthrough. But if Apple can't do it, uh, Waymo can't do it, Tesla can't do it, who's going to do it? Yeah. I mean, I think first off, the, the you know, when you look at the statistics of accidents caused by people simply not paying attention, like completely avoidable accidents um, or being uh, impaired when they're driving, that it's like this is this is a no-brainer for computers to be able to make better decisions. But I think that um, the normal driving and the ability of our brains and our eyes and our ears uh, to do what they do is really, really difficult to replicate. And so, I don't know. I mean, you know, who knows if we're ever going to get to the point where it's significantly safer. I mean, I would imagine that's the goal other than not paying drivers to drive. Uh, you know, how long will that take? Who knows if we're ever going to catch up to the human brain there? I mean, part of the thing is that like, the reason why these things get into accidents is because humans are make errors all the time. And so the car has to adjust for those errors that they're making, right? And if everything was automated, then you could you could actually argue that the system would be easier to implement if everything was autonomous. Because then everything right. would have a very specific set of rules that everything followed versus humans who don't follow rules. But deer don't follow rules. Toddlers running out in the street don't follow rules. You know, I mean, that it... it you're, you're saying this, you have to go make intelligent decisions in an environment that is not controlled by a computer. So yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, what makes a lot more sense is, uh, is enhancing the, uh, the driver experience by having uh, computers or having cars talk to each other, so that I immediately know when the car in front of me applies his brakes. Uh, you know, so getting that type of communication to me would seem significantly better or making smart roads where the car's talking to the road and they're talking the same language and we're not trying to reinvent the brain. I think yeah. reinventing the brain is hard. I mean, we can't even get the potholes fixed around here. So what, what, <laughs> what possible chances are for, for something like a smart, smart road system? And if you look at the average age of a car, at least in the United States, it's old. You know, you see a lot of new cars around, but, but there are a lot of cars in the country and a lot of them are very old, 70s and 80s. They'd have to be. I mean, I mean, either you can't let people drive those things anymore, or or you have to, you know, put a box in everyone's dashboard that does something clever. I, I don't know how that would work. Um, I don't think those are viable solutions, though, because that requires an enormous amount of money. Whereas a self-driving car itself is a one-off. But yeah, I think I think the the problem with having, I think the problem Tesla has had is that it's easy to think you know how to do something until you try and do it and you realize that it was actually um, like a false ceiling in a way. You, you just re, you sort of, you, you come up with a solution, but you realize that it only takes you so far and you can't go any further and you have to backtrack and figure out a different way to do the same thing that lets you do this other dependent thing. Um, it's very complex. I, I still think, and I'm maybe slightly biased because I did buy a, a Tesla, I, I still think that they will get there before anybody else does at this point. Um, I, I'm not sure it's fair to say they, they kill people any more than drunk drivers or anybody else on the road kills people. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's having... Would you say people kill people? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, cars don't kill people. people. <laughs> but uh, having driven around with, with the full self-driving beta functionality, when it's good, it's very, very good. Uh, but occasionally it just does something kind of wacky. And, you know, I, I don't expect it to, to, to drive me from point to point perfectly at this point. That's the whole point of signing up for the, the testing program is is to mentor the thing and, and to press the button when it does something wrong and then the feedback gets incorporated into the next round of training. And it's it's an iterative process for sure. But it's made me a lot more aware of the um, the things in the environment that you watch out for. I mean, as you're driving down a road with, with parked cars, for example, you know, you, you can look for shadows. Is the car looking for shadows? Is the car looking for a shadow of a person about to step out? Probably not. Um, you know, you can look at reflections in things. You can, you can hear things coming, which you can't even see yet. There's a whole lot of sensory input that, that is so subconscious 
um, we don't realize we're doing it. So it's easy to say, oh, it's great. You know, you open the door, you get in, you adjust the seat, you put it in drive, and we, sort of, we know where the wheels are, we know where the road is. But we're sort of not aware of what we're not aware of, even though it's sort of being incorporated into our conscious flow of, of our manual driving experience. Um, that data isn't, isn't making it into an automated car at this point. You know, the context of the real world, you know, you drive past a school, you become more aware that there might be children. Um, I, I mean, I think to, to build that type of uh, smarts into an AI in a car would be fantastic, but probably um, almost impossible. Yeah, I mean, do you think the technology is even there to do what we're trying to do, or do you think we're too early? Like, I, I mean, like, we, we always talk about... Um, you know, back in the 60s, we were like, oh, we're going to have a flying car by the year 2000. And, you know, reality was that was never going to happen because the technology didn't move, didn't evolve that fast. And is, is the situation here the, you know, that it has moved that, it, it's the available, we're just not smart enough programmatically to do it? Or do you think it's, it's all these other variables and so the computing is just not fast enough for this use case either? I don't know. I mean, I don't think the human brain is particularly fast. There's a huge amount of latency between what we see and and the time it takes to think about, uh, you know, uh, what reaches our sort of conscious level of perception. Uh, but we're very good at predicting what's about to happen. I think computers are very good at predicting what's about to happen. So I, I don't think I don't think computing power is necessarily the the limiting factor. I mean, you mentioned lidar earlier. Um, I'm I'm kind of if we're talking about consumer vehicles on the road with with the sort of automated driving capabilities, I don't. I think there's going to have to be some huge change in um, in in the cost of lidar technology. I mean, it's tens of thousands of dollars. Average Joe on the street isn't going to spend an extra twenty, thirty thousand dollars to put lidar on the top of their Honda Civic so that it can drive down the street by by themselves. It just puts the price point way. Um, out of people's reach. So you don't have a critical mass. And if you don't have a critical mass, you, you don't have uh, the economy of scale for manufacturing. It makes it very difficult. So, so the Waymos of the world, um, that's great. They can have their handful of cars out on the street and they cost a fortune. And yes, they're making great leaps and bounds, um, but it's not something that will ever scale to a mass market. So I, I, I think I think cameras... Maybe with maybe with a high resolution radar or something else, it's probably the way it's going to have to be if we if we expect the technology to reach um, you know a critical mass. I mean, on some level, I always thought lidar would just come down in price as you know economies of scale kind of came into play with it. But maybe it's it's just so far out of reach that there's, even if it got economies of scale, it's still you know I mean like how long did hybrid vehicles you know sit on this weird world where People wouldn't buy them because they were, you know, five grand higher than the comparable car, <laughs> you know, the Honda Civic versus the Honda Civic Hybrid, and they were five grand more. And people were like, "Yeah, I'm not going to do that. It's not worth five grand to me." And so, what price point does self-driving cross a barrier where people are like, "Yeah, that's worth it to me"? Because I know even when I go into the Tesla configurator, and I don't own a Tesla like you do, but when I go in there and I get to that full self-driving thing, and it's like, you know, four thousand or thirty-five hundred, whatever the number is, I'm always like, eh, "I don't know. If I want to pay for that," <laughs> especially knowing it's, it's a little bit vaporware-ish. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a, you know, is there a barrier that makes that LIDAR potentially good? And with economies of scale, it gets down to a cheap enough point that people are saying, yeah, that's worth it to me to be able to not have to drive or, or not pay as much attention to driving as I used to. I don't know. Because, I mean, the other side of it is if you get to the point where you get full autonomous driving in a, in a future state, car ownership really goes away because it's cheaper to rent by the hour needed. Uh, and just use it if there's a fleet of vehicles available to you, which is sort of part of Tesla's Model 2, which is why they, you know, the leases on the Model 3 are, you know, you return the car to Tesla because <laughs> they're, again, they're, they're betting on a longer-term utopian vision of self-driving community, and they would have this huge car fleet they could Uber out, really. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I like having my own vehicle because I know it's there if I need it in an emergency. I don't want to have to wake up in the middle of the night with a sick kid and need to take them to the hospital and wait 15 minutes for the for the car to arrive from you know its last uh, its last location. Um, but yeah, I think as a lot of people would be very happy with with just calling for a ride when they want one if it can be more affordable than owning a vehicle. I mean, it's yeah. as a service. It's a, it's about as cloudy as you can get for, with a car, really, isn't it? It's like transport as a service. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I would love it. I'd love if all cars were 
self-driving and I'm a car guy. I mm. love to go track my cars and I'd still rather something else be driving it unless I want to take over. But I mean, I still think we're way underestimating the type of computation that's happening in the brain and how hard it's going to be to replicate that uh, an attentive driver, replicate an attentive driver mm. uh, without any assistance from a human in the car at the time with the with the car itself, with the computer. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, getting back to the, to the Apple question, though, spending such a long time on the fence deciding whether they're going to build their own or or partner with somebody. I, I mean, I think that was that was the right thing to do because the technology wasn't around back then. And I, I don't think um, I don't think it would have been successful. They would have burned a lot of money, just like all these other companies have, and they wouldn't have anything to show for it. I think the one thing that Apple is good at is waiting until the right time to launch products. <laughs> they are really good at that. Well, and, I, uh, but, I even say they're a little late, typically, to launching products, right? They let everyone else launch, and then they come out with a product that they feel is superior in some key way that lets them dominate in the space where they think they can get into. But Yeah, and I can't imagine them doing that by partnering with a legacy car manufacturer. I just can't see that working. Yeah, interesting. Uh, if build wants- your own. I mean, if Tesla could build their own. I mean, they knew nothing about manufacturing. If you go back and listen to the stories, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they knew nothing about manufacturing. And so, yeah, I mean, if I was Apple, I'd be doing it on my own for sure. I mean, if I was going to do it all. In a, I mean, to, yeah, you say they know nothing. In, in a way, that that sort of turns into a little bit of an advantage in some cases as well, because you don't get end up you don't end up being stuck in these these uh, sort of grooves of thought. You know, it's always been done this way. We always have this machine that does this kind of thing. They've they've reinvented manufacturing, um, which I don't think would have happened if they if they had you know, brought in you know the executive team from Ford or somewhere else to tell them how to run. A, a car plant. I think they've, yeah. they've they came close to bankruptcy for sure, and they've made a lot of mistakes, and they've had quality issues, and they've had all kinds of problems. But they're churning out cars at an enormous rate right now, and they're nice vehicles. And I, I don't think if they'd if they'd um, if they'd started off with, with the expertise from um, the legacy companies, which oh, yeah, it's slightly offensive, I guess, to call them that. <laughs> But I don't think yeah, they're being the place they are. are though. I, mean, I don't think they're they being are. the place they are. I mean, just 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 the, the things that are different about about those cars are very impressive. They've they've reinvented a lot of things and the, the way the ways of working and and the way cars should be built and the way they work. Yep. And and I predict that if Apple tries to do it, Apple could do it better than Tesla did it. Oh, um, like they can they can ramp up faster to a high level, a high bar of manufacturing. Potentially, but would they build them in the United States? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, you know, I can see it now. It'll be they can uh, use union employees. Probably not. <laughs> that, that'll be that'll be white cars with bumper stickers. You know, designed in California, manufactured yeah. in in, uh, in China. Yep. It's, it's actually interesting you mentioned the. Um, the the manufacturing decisions that Tesla made versus you know if they had brought in someone from Ford or Toyota to do that, and there's actually a YouTube channel uh, called Monroe Live that I heard about on another podcast, and they were talking about um, they, you know they're doing a teardown of the Rivian, and they did a teardown of the Tesla previously, and they were talking about you know it's very clear that the engineers who built the Tesla did not come from cars because the things that they chose to do like you know attaching the instrument panel to the car they used one bolt on the top where the car standard is that you use five or one every three inches or something like that. And so when they tore apart the Rivian dash, they were showing like, oh yeah, you can see that their engineers clearly came from a, a car manufacturing background because the st- industry standard is that you use, you know, for every three inches you put a screw in to protect, you know, whatever, which has been an industry standard for like a hundred years. <laughs> you know, with these ridiculous things that, you know, were started a long time ago that never get requestioned because it's just what you have to do to build a car. And so, you know, that whole idea of, you know, Tesla broke all the rules to do it and, you know, it was an advantage to them because they made it cheaper in the process of manufacturing than what the Rivian cost them to build and it shows in the price points of some of these things too. Yeah, but if either of you want to ride in the uh, in the car with the uh, the car driving, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I will check that out. When, uh, <laughs> as long as you're there on standby, I'm, I'm, I'm okay letting it trusted for up to a point. I'll, I'll be there on standby. I'll be there on standby. It's, it, it can be... Uh, 
can be a little bit of a white knuckle ride sometimes. No, it's not that bad. I, I, I exaggerate. Um, it's just uh, not knowing what to expect. I mean, it doesn't always do the same thing in the same places. And that's that's the thing which I think is, is bothersome about the technology right now. Like drive down the high street down here 15 times, does it absolutely perfectly. One time, swerves to the right towards the curb, swerves back in. I didn't see anything. I didn't see, you know, why it would have done that, but it did it that one time. <laughs> yeah. Well, so and, and if you had access to the data, you could, you know, you could potentially see that, oh, it, it detected, you know, a bug flew by this one lens and it thought it might be an object, so it got concerned. Um, but, you know, again, it, it's a computer and it sees things differently than you do as a human and, you know, where its cameras are, are different too. So, yeah, it's... Uh, Consistency is definitely what makes you feel comfortable, and if you don't get consistency, then I could see that being a bit nerve-wracking. Yeah, but I mean, it's not really. It's not every prime time for sure. It's it's. I mean, like nuclear fusion, it's it's probably uh, many years away still. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I that was a fun story too. The nuclear fusion that you know this big reactor they've been building. Uh, by the time it gets built, they think they're they're not going to have enough uh, of the fuel source to actually make it work. <laughs> because because no. the amount of the fuel that it, that it needs, it's you know it's being consumed by other things, and there's only a finite amount on Earth. So it's a it was an interesting story too. That's okay. We'll find it in some asteroid somewhere. Mine it. <laughs> we'll go mine. Send an Bruce Willis right up there. Mine yeah. an asteroid for us. It'll be Elon nowadays. Yeah. Ben Affleck can go. <laughs> it's very much the definition of a non-renewable source of energy, though. Yeah, and as a yeah. finite fuel source, yeah, that, it, it seems like a bad choice all the way around. But uh, whatever. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me about self-driving cars. I'm uh, I, I'm still on the fence. I, I thought that by 2028, that was my sort of initial thought. Like, yeah, you know, 15 years, it'll be perfect. And I'm just, I think it's more like 20, 25. Maybe I'll be dead. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. All right, guys. Maybe. Have yeah. a good Have a good rest of your week. You too. Yeah, you too.